would invite you to turn with me to Psalm 68. Psalm 68, I am going to be reading verses 1 through 18. This is on page 589 in your pew Bible. Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad, let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O oh God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. Your creatures settled in it. You provided in your goodness for the poor, O God. The Lord gives the command. <clears throat> the women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. Kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoil. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty scatters the kings there, it was snowing in Zalman. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks? at the mountain which God has desired for his abode. Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now in the New Testament, we turn to Ephesians. To Ephesians chapter 4. And I will be reading verses 7 through 16. But to each one of us, Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? 
He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, that it is our sure and true guide to what we are to believe and how we are to live. Now, O Lord, by your word, govern our thoughts and our actions, our affections, and our commitments. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I sometimes wonder what people really think of pastors. Living here in Sheboygan County, there is a general respect accorded to ministers of the gospel. Here at Grace Church, you've treated your pastors well over the years. One of the first things that I noticed when I came to candidate was the parking spot reserved for our pastor. I have no complaints about how I have been treated over the past 17 years. And yet I wonder, more broadly speaking, what do people really think about pastors? Some may view them as hourly employees of the church who ought to do whatever they are told to do. Other times, pastors are viewed as unscrupulous busybodies who are just trying to pry money out of their parishioners' pockets. Still others would see ministers as hypocrites who don't often practice what they preach. I would suspect that a growing percentage of the population views pastors as essentially irrelevant and largely unimportant. They are a relic of a bygone era when religion played a more central role in society. Now, not surprisingly, the Apostle Paul had a much higher view of pastors, indeed, of all church officers. So this morning we are going to pivot in our consideration of the doctrine of the church to begin looking at church officers as the ascension gifts of the risen Christ. 
Then we're going to consider the purposes of Christ's gifts to his church. And we will finish with the fruit of pastor teachers. At the end of Jesus' time on earth, there was a sequence of important events that played out. The first of these was his arrest, trial, conviction, and crucifixion. Jesus died upon the cross. This is vitally important. After three days in the tomb, he rose again to life, and his resurrection is equally significant. He appeared to multiple eyewitnesses for a period of 40 days, at which time he ascended into heaven. Now, we don't really know much about the ascension, except that he was lifted up into the sky and disappeared into a cloud as the eleven apostles stood there watching him. But what Paul tells us here in Ephesians 4 gives us the rest of the story. Quoting from Psalm 68, Paul says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul further explains that he had descended into the lower parts of the earth, and that he who descended is also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Now there's a lot there. But what is especially noteworthy is that the risen and ascended Christ gave gifts to men. In fact, the risen Christ showers his grace upon his people. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift, Paul says. So there is a general gift of abundant grace that is broadly given to all of his people. But there are other ascension gifts that Christ also distributes. He gave gifts to men as he led captive a host of captives. So what are these ascension gifts? What specifically did Christ give to men? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 11. It says, He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. There are four distinct offices that are described here. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Now that last one is not two offices, but it's one office with two aspects to it. It's really the office of pastor, teacher. If you wanted to put a little hyphen there, you could do that. Because this is a distinct office, the office of pastor-teacher. And so, these are Christ's ascension gifts to men. Church officers. Just think about that for a moment. What is it that Christ decides to give to men 
in celebration of his victorious ascension into heaven. Everything in all creation is at his disposal. He can give anything. So what does he choose to give as his ascension gifts? Does he give gold, silver, gems, money? Does he give fine clothing or valuable lands or worldly power? Maybe it's social influence or popularity with the masses. Of all that he could give, what does he choose to give? He chooses church officers. That's his choice. Now all of us have probably at some time or another received a gift, perhaps at Christmas or on a birthday, a gift that we didn't fully appreciate. As soon as we opened it, we decided in our own minds to re-gift this to someone else. Some gifts that we receive can frankly be very disappointing and underwhelming. Oh, you shouldn't have. <laughs> but not this gift. This gift is such a treasure that Jesus himself determined that it was the best and most valuable thing that he could possibly give to men. This is what men need more than all other worldly treasures. Men need church officers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. And when we come to appreciate what the risen Christ has given us, we will agree that there is no better gift that he could possibly have found to celebrate his ascension. Well, perhaps you're sitting there listening to this and you're not yet convinced that church officers were really the best gift that Jesus could have bestowed. Let me now explain some of the unique purposes of Christ's gifts. And I think as you grasp this, you're going to better understand why Christ gave these officers to his church. The purpose of these officers is laid out for us in verse 12 of our text. So let me back up and read once again verses 11 and 12. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now some care is needed in understanding verse 12 correctly, especially the first phrase of verse 12. In the original Greek... There are no commas. English translators add commas to make the meaning plainer and clearer to the reader. And it really matters quite a bit whether or not you insert a comma in that phrase, that first phrase. So let me read it again for you without a comma and then with a comma. So without the comma, it reads, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. 
And that is how the New American Standard Bible translates it. With a comma, it reads, For the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of service. Now here's why the punctuation matters. If you insert a comma between saints and for the work of service, then you are separating or dividing those two into two separate ideas or two separate concepts. The officers are first for the equipping of the saints, and then, second, they are for the work of service. And if you put a comma in, that means that the officers are the ones who do the work of ministry. Mainly, perhaps entirely. But the other reading, the first reading, without the comma, suggests that the officers are equipping the saints in order that the saints can do the work of service. In this reading, the officers are helping the saints to engage in works of ministry. The officers don't do all of the ministry themselves, but they are equipping God's people, the members of the church, so that church members can engage in works of service or works of ministry. This approach actively involves all church members in the works of service. It says that members can do evangelism. Members can carry on hospitality ministry. Members are competent to counsel one another. Members can lead Bible studies and teach Sunday school classes. They can conduct VBS. Church members can participate in a wide range of spiritual service. And the church officers are there to help them to achieve all of that by equipping them for that purpose. Now, it's my conviction that this first option is the far better and far healthier option, where the pastor-teacher is equipping the saints so that the saints can engage in ministry. If you insert that wretched comma and you assign all the works of service to the clergy, then you get a very clerical religion where ordinary church members stand by and watch the officers do all the work of ministry. Church members are then reduced to spectators. They are not participants. And I think that this is extremely unwise and incredibly unhealthy. Because if you have that comma in there, that means that myself, Dr. Wingard, Pastor Ivan, and the ruling elders, we're doing everything. 
We're doing all the ministry. We're teaching all the Bible studies. We're holding all of the BBS classes. We're doing every single Sunday school for every age group. If there is any ministry that goes on, it is just the ordained officers, especially the pastors, that do it. And you just sit there and watch us. And what so often happens in this kind of setup is that as the membership are reduced to spectators, just sitting in the stands watching what the officers are doing on the field of play, guess what happens among the membership? They start to get critical of the officers. Oh, look at that. He can't even throw a five-yard pass to the running back in the flat. He can't do anything right. And so there tends to be a rather caustic attitude that develops among the membership as they grow more and more critical of the officers for not being utterly perfect in everything. And they sit on the sideline doing nothing. They stagnate. They're not active. It also tends to reduce the amount of ministry that a church can actually do. If I'm equipping you, then you're going out and you're doing ministry, all kinds of ministry. But if I've got to do everything, I've got my limitations, and I have to live with them or I die. And so this kind of clerical approach says we're going to narrow it, narrow it, narrow it, narrow it down, and we just got a very narrow sliver of ministry going on because only ministers can do ministry. Get rid of the comma. It doesn't belong there. It is rather the work of the pastor-teacher to equip you, the saints, for the work of service so that you can go out and do ministry. You're competent, you're capable, you're filled with God's Spirit, you can do ministry. It's my job to equip you. Well, then, leaving that comma out, we come to the second phrase there in verse 12, to the building up of the body of Christ. Church officers exist to build up the body of Christ, to gather in and to care for God's people. And in this way, the body of Christ grows to reach its full potential, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, as he says in verse 13. Now this is especially and particularly the task of the pastor-teacher. In that list of officers, two of the four are special or extraordinary officers, I'm talking about apostles and prophets. These were first century special offices which were important for the foundational period of the early church. Once the first century had ended, the offices of apostle and prophet disappeared from the church. 
But the offices of evangelist and pastor-teacher are continuing regular offices. These offices abide throughout the centuries. It's especially the pastor-teacher that is useful for the building up of the body of Christ. Now this office is described by the Apostle Paul using two terms, pastor or shepherd and teacher. The pastor or shepherd side speaks to the need for gentle pastoral care. Like a tender shepherd caring for the lambs of Christ's flock, the pastor is attentive to the needs of the people. On Monday, DeLue and I went down to interview John and Lois Hilbelink. And we had just a delightful time with the Hilbelinks. And as we were wrapping up the interview and I was putting away some equipment, the phone rings. And so John picks up the phone, and it is very obviously a member of their church. And this member is distraught. Had some really tough things going on, and she was at her rope's end. And you know, John and Lois and Delu and I had been talking about Grace Church and the history of Grace Church and when the Hillblinks were here, and it was really a nice conversation. But just boom, like that. Both John and Lois turned on the pastoral gifts. And John talked to this member for a while, and since it was a lady, he said, maybe you should talk to Lois. And he handed the phone to Lois, and Lois talked to her for a while. The pastoral wisdom and care from both John and Lois was so soothing to this distraught person this person had some trouble and it wasn't that she was calling for answers she was calling for someone to care for her and they did you could just hear it in their voices Delu and I were like wow this is what real pastoral ministry looks like it was so good and so as a shepherd tenderly caring for the sheep, the pastor is gentle. He comes alongside. He feeds. He binds up their wounds. He leads them into green pastures and beside quiet waters. It is really the pastor serving the congregation as an expression of Christ, the chief shepherd. And so the pastoral side is the care side, and that is so important. But as a complement to his pastoral work, he also carries out a teaching ministry. He is a pastor-teacher. He preaches and he teaches the Word of God to the people of God. He is seeking to teach them to obey whatsoever Christ has commanded and in this way, this pastor-teacher is feeding their minds as he cares for their souls. And this is what good pastors constantly, continually do. They are shepherding, 
and they are instructing. They are caring, and they are teaching. And so a pastor-teacher is always doing both of these things simultaneously, and it brings tremendous results. So what results should we expect from a faithful pastor-teacher? As these church officers carry out their God-given ministries, what fruits should we anticipate? Well, there are four things that Paul identifies in the following verses. They are unity, knowledge, maturity, and growth. Unity, knowledge, maturity, and growth. First of all, when a pastor-teacher does his job correctly, it produces unity. Not division, but unity. Now, general unity is a good thing. And any pastor who is worth his salt will promote the general unity of the body. He will not do things that force people to take sides, that lay the groundwork for division. He doesn't say, my way or the highway, come with me or you're against me. He's not leading a movement. He is building unity in the church. But there's a very specific type of unity described by Paul there in verse 13. And he says there, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Now there's different ways to understand this and to understand what Paul is actually saying here. You could possibly read it that it is a unity which arises from the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. But you can also read it that the unity is that which binds faith to the knowledge of the Son of God. We believe and we know the Son of God. And that binding together of our faith with our knowledge then unites us to the Son of God and unites us to one another. This is a thoroughgoing, deep, broad unity that is based on a true knowledge of God the Son and that is marked by true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When knowledge and faith are bound together and we share in them, then we are bound to one another and we are bound to our Savior. And this is what good teaching and careful pastoral care yields. A growing conviction of the truth, an increasing commitment, and the attainment of unity within the body of Christ. We are all committed to the same Savior, and we are all committed to one another. And that's what we're working towards here at Grace Church. And I believe we've made some 
good steady progress over the years. There is a joint shared commitment to the truth about Jesus and to faith in Christ. And as we share in those commitments to the truth of the gospel and are together believing the gospel, we are deeply connected to Christ. We are united to Christ through faith. And as we are united to Christ through faith, we are also united to one another. This creates strong bonds that are not easily broken because our commitment is rooted in Christ and the truth we believe. And that bond which Christ himself establishes produces a growing, maturing, sweetening unity that even the devil and the host of hell cannot break apart. And as I say, I think we've got a remarkable level of that here in our congregation. It's been here for a lot of years. And it continues, and it ought to grow even more as the years go by. So the first fruit of a good pastor teacher who is doing his job is unity. A second fruit from the ministry of a pastor teacher has already been mentioned, but I think it bears some further emphasis. It is the fruit of the knowledge of the Son of God. When a good pastor teacher is doing his job correctly, he is introducing God's people more and more to the Lord Jesus Christ. He teaches them about Christ's person and Christ's work. He highlights the offices of Christ. He points to the attributes of Christ. So let's be clear. The spotlight is never ever to be fixed on the pastor-teacher. But rather it is to be pointed constantly at Jesus Christ. In the words of John the Baptizer, He must increase, but I must decrease. If you are learning more about your pastor than you are learning about your Savior, there is something seriously wrong with the situation. Because pastors are mere human beings, we come and go. We have feet of clay. If you know me, whoop-de-doo. It's not that great. If you know Christ, you know the one who is the glory and beauty of heaven, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one before whom angels cover their faces and the cherubim cry out, Holy, holy, holy. You know the Lamb upon the throne who has redeemed you by His blood. You need to know Christ. Many people have and will live without ever knowing that Brian DeYoung ever existed. Their lives will not be poorer for that ignorance. But if you don't know Christ, 
you don't know the main thing, the chief thing. And so any good pastor teacher is constantly pointing people away from himself and to the Son of God so that they can not know not only about him, but that they can know him and have that relationship with him. Fruit number three is spiritual maturity. As we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, it is in order that we might be a mature man. It's maturity not according to earthly standards, but rather measuring up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. Spiritual maturity means we are no longer children who are tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, easily taken in by the trickery of men or the craftiness in deceitful scheming. We are not kids who are easily duped or manipulated by unscrupulous people. We have a maturity that can see things as they truly are. A maturity that can see through the schemes of men. And this maturity comes only through the sustained and faithful ministry of pastor-teachers who take their work seriously and point men to the Son of God. As you sit under the ministry of such a minister, you are being led, slowly but surely, inexorably, toward maturity in Christ. And as you benefit from pastoral care, as well as the teaching ministry, maturity is developing within you. We are all in the process of ripening becoming what God would have us be. And God has chosen to bring that about through the ministry of the church officers He has given to His body. He could have used angels. Angels could have done this work. He could have used rocks, trees, and stones. He's that powerful. But He has chosen to bring his people to maturity through the ministry of his ordained servants. And so this is what faithful ministry by a pastor-teacher produces mature people. The final fruit probably deserves a sermon all of its own. Don't worry. We're almost done. We are growing up into Christ. As we speak the truth in love, we thereby grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. We are like a body, with all the parts being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. And this causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. If you are under a faithful pastor-teacher, then you are to be growing spiritually. 
not plateauing, not stagnating, certainly not sliding backwards, but growing. Now, maybe you're at point A, and you need to grow to point B. Or maybe you're at point F, and you need to go to point G. Wherever you're at, God is taking you from who you are to who He has designed you to be. And that process of growth is gradual and in many ways invisible. We don't often see it. But then when we step back and we look back at the past and we see what we once were and we see where we are now, we think, yeah, I'm growing. I've grown over the past month, year, decade. I can look at my own ministry and think back to when I was first ordained. It was kind of a train wreck. I did things, I sometimes said things where I think, yikes, what was I thinking? Why did I say that? And I look at my preaching and I say, you know, in those early years, I would have like a 20-minute introduction and then I'd take a good solid 10 minutes for the first point and then I'd realize I've got two more points and I'm out of time and so I go blast through those last two points. Not very good sermons. That's just what I think. The Lord grows us all over time. He does it by His grace. He uses His instruments. He uses His Word. And we are growing. I hope it's your experience that you're growing through the ministry of this church through the preaching and teaching and the pastoral care that I do, that you have made progress from what you once were to what you are now becoming. Because that's what pastors, teachers do. They stimulate growth. They cause growth through the work and grace of Christ. And so now looking back over what I've just said about the fruits would you agree this was the best gift Christ could have given? He had everything at his disposal. The whole creation is his. He gave church officers. Pretty good gift, huh? Praise the Lord. He knew what we needed. He gave us the best thing. So that we could become the people he wants us to be. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you in your wisdom chose to give to the church these officers to carry out this ministry, to equip the saints for the work of service and to build up the body of Christ. We thank you for the unity we enjoy, for the knowledge of Christ we have gained, for the maturity and the growth that we see all around us and in ourselves. We thank you that you are using your ordained means to bring about your good purposes. Glory and honor to you, O Lord. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.